0: Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation.
1: And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. Joanna is away this week.
0: In today's episode, we'll discuss some of the hate-related charges that have been laid following the various anti-Israel rallies, and explain why we haven't seen more people formally accused.
1: And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land.
0: But first, let's talk about the Ontario Human Rights Commission's decision to recognize caste discrimination, Christine.
1: Okay, so Ontario Human Rights Commission recognized caste-based discrimination. You said caste, not caste, right?
0: Yeah, it's caste. And if you were a Brahmin like me, you would know that. (laughs)
1: See that? Okay, this is the problem. Let me let me get into it. Okay, so Ontario Human Rights Commission recognized caste-based discrimination for the first time uh, on October 26. What they did was they uh, published an official policy position on how to address the issue under the Human Rights Code. And this policy position that they published tells organizations that are covered by the code, which includes employers and landlords, and unions. Things like that, professional associations. So this policy said that these organizations have an obligation to investigate possible cases of caste-based discrimination. And it said organizations must respond to and investigate claims of caste-based discrimination and remedy situations where discrimination is found. They should have human rights complaints procedures in place and could also recognize caste-based discrimination in a corporate human rights policy. So they define caste-based discrimination and the caste system as a hierarchy that, quote, determines a person or group's social, class, or standing rooted in their ancestry and underlying notions of purity and pollution. And this system... Which you know, I, I've heard I've heard of this. Obviously, I have South Asian friends uh, who have told me about the system. I've learned about it listening to the news. I've heard about this a little, um, but basically, it's a a system of ancient Indian social structure with roots in ancient Hindu texts, and it subdivides people into four main sub communities based on ancestry. The Brahmins being the I guess top caste. Then there are several others and the lowest on this system are the Dalits and they are at the bottom of this caste system. So the concern is discrimination against lower caste people by higher caste people. And look, it is not clear to me whether there have actually already been cases in Ontario brought on the grounds of caste-based discrimination. Now I had read about this in the New York Times That there was a claim in California against Cisco, the technology company, by some employees alleging caste discrimination. And there have also been cases there alleging discrimination in housing based on caste. So lower caste people were denied housing by uh, higher caste landlords. And I'm of sort of two minds about this. I mean that that sounds terrible. That sounds absolutely awful that people would be discriminated against on the basis of the their last name and and these characteristics that don't even exist, right? These are these are not real reasons to differentiate between anyone. Uh, the on the basis of of this, this is not this is terrible for society. But I also am concerned about the idea of importing this into our, our society. And as I said, I, I literally didn't know what these cast different castes were. And while I've heard of the caste system, as I said, I would actually prefer not to know about it. I don't want more information about how to subdivide people in our society. And I'm unsure how much of this type of discrimination actually exists in Canada. And I'm really apprehensive about making it a bigger deal than it is. I also have some fears that, you know, expressly naming the caste system as a protected characteristic will disproportionately make South Asians more vulnerable to unfair accusations that they're engaging in discrimination for things that they may be doing that have absolutely nothing to do with caste. And There have been people who, you know, when I was reading this about this in the New York Times, they they have shared those concerns. People who oppose recognizing caste discrimination as a analogous or protected ground share these these concerns. And they've written that uh, in the California case, there's a move to make this a statute to prohibit this discrimination by statute and they said it will draw greater attention to outdated south asian distinctions rather than dissolving them and uh was a quote in the article from the managing director for policy at the hindu american foundation who's one of the organizations that opposes recognizing caste-based discrimination and this person said, we are all American now and our kids are second and third generation. As immigrants, we want to create a better society and lifestyle and leave all of these issues behind. So I I sympathize with that view. and But I also think on the right facts, I can see this happening. The stories I read about I, this type of dis- discrimination happening, especially as the socioeconomic classes who are now immigrating from India have broadened they're not it i think used to be much more of a high income group that immigrated to north america and i think with some changes in indian society it seems like there are people from those other previously highly discriminated against classes who are now able financially to to be in a position to immigrate and so we're seeing more of them in our society when we might not have previously seen that. And I don't want to see discrimination imported from these really values that run counter to the values of a liberal Western democracy. Um, but I also think that perhaps prohibitions on discrimination on the basis of ancestry might already capture what this new policy is trying to to capture. But you know, on the other hand, as I said, I, I hate the idea that someone would be denied housing on this basis basically i i I can see it both ways i'm inclined to not want to expand analogous grounds if it can already be captured by something else but i also hate the idea of discrimination on the basis of something like this so josh any reaction to any of that
0: um i tend to agree with you i I think that um, human rights commissions and I'm actually going to talk about this in my bad legal take a little bit. I think they often entertain a lot of like frivolous and silly complaints. But if there is um, a bona fide, you know, caste based discrimination case, I, I think I would want to see some resolution of that here in, in Canada. And I really don't doubt that it's happening to some degree because I've, I've traveled to India and um, traveling often makes you realize how lucky we are in Canada, that we have so little discrimination because it's just in your face everywhere when you go to India that people are divided up based on on um, skin color and also that there are, are people that are of such a low caste, or I guess another way of looking at it is just class, that they're untouchable and they can't um, get certain jobs and they, they are condemned to sort of a life of poverty um i also spent some time in the uk uh in university and one of the things that was really eye-opening about that was just how much more class-based the uk society is than than canada so i think we're pretty lucky that um, we don't tend to deal with a lot of these problems but if people are facing caste-based discrimination i do want it to stop um i don't know if human rights tribunals are the best approach to that but um i'll get into that a little bit more in my my bad legal take um I want to move on to my news headline Uh, I've got a lot to say so I uh it's uh, get get ready as usual I've got to (laughs) blast all kinds of information at you so we've finally started to see some charges resulting from this explosion of hate that's been erupting at these um pro-Palestinian or anti-Israel however you want to characterize them rallies and I wanted to to sort of like walk through those charges and um, share some thoughts on whether they're justified so as listeners probably know we're civil libertarians so we're quite wary of any restrictions on freedom of speech and that includes criminal code hate speech provisions but at the same time the supreme court has made clear that like the hate propaganda provision for example is a demonstrably justified limit on freedom of expression so from a rule of law perspective we do want to see that kind of thing enforced and the other big uh provision in the criminal code is this advocating genocide provision and that hasn't been tested at the Supreme Court but I feel like it would likely be upheld because uh if anything you know advocating genocide is closer to inciting violence and those kinds of things that become more obvious acceptable limits on on expression the first charge I want to talk about is this one laid by the Calgary police and i gotta say i have nothing but contempt for the message that was involved here but i'm still not sure that police got this one right so calgary calgary police say they charged this guy named Wasam cooley with causing a disturbance and police say that it was hate motivated and hate motivated means that he's not charged with a hate crime or hate speech per se but if convicted the judge could give this person like a longer sentence if it's if it's hate motivated. Calgary police say that members of their diversity response team, and I thought that was a funny name, um, met with organizers of this pro-Palestinian rally to quote, discuss some language and some signage observed at past protests. And police say that this guy took to the stage and then he used a quote anti-Semitic phrase while encouraging the crowd to follow along. Now, police won't say what that phrase was, which is ridiculous, because if they're going to start arresting people for words they can't say, then we should probably know what those words are. But according to CBC, the phrase was from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. And, you know, I personally see this phrase as potentially genocidal because most people who use it are probably thinking that there should be like a Palestinian state from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean. And the only practical way to do that is to, you know, wipe out all the Jews or, or force them to leave their homeland. But these words, like most words, and this is why hate speech is like such a dangerous concept, are very much open to interpretation. And some people say that they envision, when they say this chant, they envision like a, a Palestinian state that has... Millions of Jews in it, which would.
1: Yeah, I've what the way I've heard some people s- explain what they mean by that phrase is that they that Palestinian people are free to move from the river to the sea and they're free within a state to move anywhere. And exactly. I, I do think they sincerely mean that I don't think everyone who says that is anti-Semitic, but I do think it's a choice to use the same chant that Hamas Uses a hamas yeah. who literally did engage in genocide
0: i mean this is the this is the problem like i exactly. think some people some people mean that in uh a sort of naive way but i i think most of them envision you know sort of subjugating jews within an arab state or forcing them to move like you hear a lot of people say well they should move they should all move to europe or they should all move to the united states they should all move or to have Florida. a
1: naive view that a hamas run palestinian state would allow jews to live freely right obviously would not
0: so anyway it just shows the problem with these subjective statements but like this this phrase is um it's actually been banned in berlin they say that this is like uh basically just like saying death to jews and in the uk a labor mp has been suspended for joining that chant so a lot of people see it more the way i do which is that it's usually more of a genocidal thing but the concern i have is the police might have laid this charge not because there was like a disturbance but because they've re- been receiving a lot of pressure from calgary's mayor jayadi gondek for to, to lay charges and gondek is the same mayor that uh, put in place this horrendous protest ban that limits protests that were fighting in court and she's still at it. You know, just last week she wrote a letter condemning these assemblies and protests, and she says in her letter, quote, Unfortunately, our existing legislation does not recognize or address the inherently violent nature of the offensive language and symbolism we're hearing in our city streets. I am calling on those who create and preside over hate crime legislation to be on the ground with us to experience the intensity with which the quote offensive language is creating safety issues Legislators and prosecutors need to understand the context of the language that they presently deem only offensive and the problem with this is the mayor is go butting up against clear supreme court jurisprudence that has said that merely offensive speech can't be outlawed in canada and you know that's a good thing because people in power will always claim and have throughout history always claimed that some ideas are offensive and they need to be banned. And, you know, this, this is what I told a journalist from McDonald Laurier Institute last week when he was asking me to explain why we haven't seen more hate crime charges. Like, simply put, the bar for criminalizing hate speech in Canada is really high. We do know, I think, that an at least in my opinion, from the river to the sea is not high enough to meet that that threshold. The last I think ma-
1: it's an awful thing to chant but i agree with you i don't think it's at that level right and i think we should i think it's really important as a society to explain the the origins of that phrase who else uses that phrase and what they mean by it and when when people naively chant it what they may be endorsing knowingly or not but that's the whole point of freedom of expression is to explain and debate these concepts and and have these ideas push up against each other to, to get a clearer picture of the truth.
0: Right, right. And in terms of getting a clear picture, um, we don't really have a clear picture of exactly where the line is between what the what's currently illegal and what isn't. And if you look at this case, Watcott, which the CCF intervened in, Justice Marshall Rothstein for the Supreme Court did say that you know merely offensive or humiliating speech which includes disdain or dislike can't be criminalized but he also said representations that expose a group to detestation or extreme ill will can be criminalized and you know to my mind it's not really all that helpful because a lot of these things are synonyms you know like why is disdain legal but detestation is not it's a it's a pretty fine line but Rossine also offered some guidance known as the hallmarks of hatred that he says can point to speech that may have crossed a line and this includes vilifying the targeted group by blaming its members for the current problems in society alleging they're a powerful menace arguing they're carrying out secret conspiracies to gain global control saying they're a parasitic race or liars or cheats or criminals or thugs and again i don't think a lot of this should be illegal because at the end of the day the this can describe a lot of just sort of mean words and it's really hard to know when you have crossed the line and that leads to a big chill effect but this sort of brings me back to you know why i find this charge from calgary police concerning because um to me like that chant is like i find it offensive but i don't think it rises to that level of you know vilification or detestation and Police probably know that, and that's why they probably charged this causing a disturbance, uh, laid this causing disturbance charge, rather than um, something related to actual hate speech. So I was also asked by this reporter, by the way, um, why Adil Sharqawi, which is this notorious Montreal imam, hasn't been charged with hate propaganda for his statement on October 28th, which many people, including the the Premier of Quebec, have publicly stated uh counts as hate speech so i don't know if you've seen this video christine yeah
1: yeah i have it's disgusting
0: it's it's scary this guy i think it's in arabic i'm going to assume and he says allah destroy the arrogant zionists and he says kill them all do not exempt even one of them and then the the really scary part is all the people in the crowd who are sort of cheering this on But, you know, even in that case, I'm not sure whether the speech was illegal or not. Like I told the reporter, this looks like it could be advocating genocide under 318.1, but that might depend on whether Zionist counts as a section of the public distinguished by race, religion, or national ethnic origin. Other people have commented that this could be inciting hatred under section 319, but even that is kind of questionable because one of the defenses to that charge is expressing an opinion in good faith on a religious subject or based on a religious text which the person believes and islam has some texts that arguably are anti-zionist and so it's you know possible that defense could could work so I don't know. There was also a charge, I'll mention this just briefly, in Calgary for uttering threats against Jewish community organizations. And to be clear, this is not concerning to me. Like, this is true threats or one of those things that our free speech is not meant to protect. So I'm not as concerned about that charge. There's also a, a charge against an Ontario man who's apparently been charged just with breaching his bail at this point, but he also was posting anti-Semitic things online. So if you read between the lines, it sounds like he might be charged with a hate crime. Before I pass it over to you, Christine, um, to get more of your reaction, I just want to reiterate that I am very sympathetic to the people who see this River to the Sea chant as hateful or genocidal. That's how I tend to interpret it too. But I think it's really important not to criminalize things like that. Because if we start putting people in jail or threatening to pe- put people in jail for saying something that subjective, then governments can cr- criminalize us for saying other things that are subjective. And if that happens, our free expression becomes almost meaningless. Um, I'll just end with this quote from this lawyer. So this is the guy defending the the person charged in Calgary. And this lawyer, Zachary Al-Khatib says, None of us, no matter our stance on this conflict, should want our society be to be a place where political speech is criminalized. Ideas and political slogans should be debated and decided in the public square. And i I think that's right. Um, Christine, any any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been interrupting you with my thoughts this whole time time, <laughs> Josh, I'm sorry. Uh, but yes, i i I absolutely share your view with on this. I think that, that is how i interpret that slogan but i also believe the people who there are people who chant it who are ignorant about what it means and about how it is used by actual terrorists who engage in genocide and are calling for genocide and i think that there's an intention in that i also think it it has a different meaning in in arabic but i don't really recall the origins of it and the arabic meaning is slightly different and clearer but the people who chant it, i think there's some in, in in the west a lot of them i think there's some naivety naivete about what what they're what they're saying and i do think some of them genuinely believe that it is a call for peace but this is not how it is intended by Hamas who also uses this phrase and i think that it's a deliberate choice to chant something that is chanted by people who engage in genocide and mean genocide by it and you you should people who chant it should be aware of that that it is used as a justification for genocide and they're saying the same thing so stop saying it if you don't mean genocide stop saying it because that's what the genocidaires say
0: yeah i this stuff is so fraught i just uh it just reminded me i was on twitter this morning and i saw some people pointing to the rally for israel in Mar in washington dc that happened yesterday a huge rally like roughly three hundred thousand people went and a few people in the crowds or one person in the crowd had this sign that said finish the job That's and I, well That's- here's the thing i think i've said that since this israel thing i think i've said that myself and what i mean is you know take out Hamas but oh, yeah but everyone oh, no, on Twitter is saying that. that's like genocidal right so words are so subjective and that's why these types of laws are just uh very very risky and concerning no I agree with finishing
1: yeah. the job on Hamas but you're right like how this is the whole problem with criminalizing speech that words have different meanings and what's and and it's really difficult to get to the intention behind the meaning of the words especially in some cases where it's uh, deliberately kind of sneaky words or deliberately misleading, like the the river to the sea chant. I think there's some intention there to make it appear one way and then have a different meaning, like the different hidden meaning.
0: Yeah, or kill all the Zionists when we really know that you probably mean kill all the Jews, but it's not the the exact words you said.
1: That's still calling for killing that's still bad that's still wrong you can't call for murder
0: yeah i guess fair enough murder is bad i guess i can i can get on board with that um so instead of throwing to break uh where we normally tell you to go sign up for russ's freedom update i just wanted to mention our year-end fundraising campaign instead this tuesday is giving tuesday which has quickly become um the time of year when a lot of charities like ours bring in a large percentage of the donations that sustain them year round. And so we want you to consider making a tax deductible donation to the CCF. Um, Joanna told me before she left that we should mention that we'll be matching funds of up to $100,000 based on some very generous donors. So this time of year is the best time of year to donate because you can double your impact. And that can lead to, you know, more court challenges defending liberty and this is true we're a pretty small team and the more money that we can bring in at the end of the year the more we can take on governments and defend your freedoms and I've actually been doing a lot of that lately I've been working on three new cases that we haven't made public yet um but Christine I think you're gonna discuss I'm about one to of make those one public. yeah and <laughs> I'm about to uh, talk to a reporter after this podcast about a second one so um Give us your your breaking news on on the litigation we've been working on.
1: Yeah, so this is about this is a about a news headline we've actually previously talked about on the show, uh, but now we're taking some action. So a bylaw in Waterloo was enacted in September that banned quoting to quote objectionable or unwelcome conduct, comment, bullying, or actions that could reasonably cause offense or humiliation, and that was on the basis of certain human rights grounds. So Josh 3 weeks ago you wrote to the Waterloo Regional Councillors to express our concerns at the CCF that you know while obviously well intentioned that bylaw infringes on sections 2B freedom of expression and 2C freedom of assembly which are guaranteed under the charter because it's well established that expression that is merely objectionable unwelcome or offensive or humiliating cannot be limited and as we just talked about this was all discussed in a or held in a decision called what caught from from the Supreme Court. It was a unanimous decision written by Justice Rothstein. We intervened in that case. and Justice Rothstein made it clear that expression that ridicules belittles or otherwise affronts the dignity of any person or class of persons on the basis of a prohibited ground is not a reasonable limit on expression and merely hurtful or offensive ideas are not sufficient to ground a justification for infringing on freedom of expression. And what caught clarified that hate, hateful speech can be limited under the charter, but only where it constitutes those extreme manifestations of the emotion described by the words detestation and vilification. And that doesn't include expression that is just offensive or repugnant or doesn't incite the level of abhorrent abhorrence or delegitimization and rejection that risks causing discrimination or other harmful effects. So our position and we lay this out in the letter that you sent to Waterloo is that the bylaw is an unconstitutional limit on freedom of peaceful assembly as well as expression and it creates this awkward position of putting police in the in this position where they have to sort out complex questions of blurred lines between just dissenting opinion and matters of objectionable and unwelcome comment. And it looks like the goal of the bylaw that Waterloo enacted was to prevent public conduct on municipal property that is, in many cases, already illegal. And if it's already illegal, then police can already address it using existing tools and the council didn't need to resort to an unconstitutional bylaw that unjustifiably infringes on freedom of ex- expression and assembly so an example of an existing law police could use is the hate speech prohibitions under section 319 of the criminal code and uh, where the attorney general has has given consent to prosecute and police forces in waterloo already have these specialized hate crimes units dedicated to recognizing when speech crosses that line into hate speech and parliament and the common law also give police forces tools to respond to other unacceptable behavior at public assemblies without infringing on expression or the right to peaceful assembly so you sent this letter to waterloo asking them to rescind this bylaw has there been a response yet josh what's what's happening
0: no so it's been it's been a few weeks and we want to give them some time because we always prefer that you know city councils that um, make these mistakes that they just fix them because litigating is expensive for us and it's expensive for waterloo taxpayers and uh, this this is a case where they have a real opportunity to do that because the bylaw doesn't come into effect until january 1st 2024 but uh, for whatever reason they haven't uh, bothered to respond to us yet. I watched the city council meeting where they debated this and the city councilors, I get the sense that they really, their hearts are in the right place, most of them, and they they really want to do something good for their community because there's been a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment and the results of that can be deadly. Like we, we, we talked about anti-Semitism in this podcast because we're seeing a lot of that right now, but we have to remember there's also a lot of anti-Muslim hate out there and that's not acceptable either but um the 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 city council like there were some people there uh, I think the mayor of of Kitchener for example who were were questioning this they were saying is this really a good idea you know if if um if hate speech is so hard for police to figure out how are our bylaw officers going to be able to decide what crosses the line into something you can limit and you know since since that since they passed this bylaw in October, we've, we've seen exactly that, you know, police forces have specialized teams who uh, try to figure out where that line is, which is not particularly clear that we you know it's a a high bar, but it's not the, the clearest bar for criminal hate speech. And so how are bylaw officers ever going to be able to figure that out? And uh, that doesn't even get into the whole chill effect where people in Waterloo are now afraid to say anything at protests or put anything on their sign because it's going to be deemed potentially hateful and they'll end up with a ticket and um, nobody wants that right so we hope that waterloo responds to that and uh, i guess we'll see what happens my bad legal take goes to a saskatchewan public servant who says she was fired for quote being queer and has filed a human rights complaint alleging discrimination So this woman told reporters that she was fired because she had insisted on using the words, my humans, uh, because in her view, that was a gender -gender neutral way of addressing her employees. And she points out that her employer had asked her not to, to say this. And she said, quote, I had absolutely nothing else on my file. So obviously it's discrimination. Um, the city, meanwhile, said that's not true. Although they did did admit they had talked to her about using the words "my humans," and that staff had brought forward some complaints about that. But
1: what uh, what what is even the complaint about that okay. though? Like, why are people so, mad about that? Yeah, good I, I, point. This is all ridiculous.
0: <laughs> so what she's saying is she is a she identifies as queer. We don't know exactly whether she means like transgender or whatever, but her point is that she is a queer person trying to gender gender neutralize the language by using the obvious gender neutral phrase my humans this apparently annoyed her employees and they did complain about it and her employer did talk to her about it um i
1: also think it's ridiculous to be annoyed by that though like it's kind of a a weird weird thing to say i guess but also like you sound a bit like you're an alien and you're like hello humans But I don't know why anyone would be really mad about this. This is odd.
0: A straight person would say that, Christine. Um, (laughs) So according to the city, it's really weird. That's why it's my bad legal take. Um, The city said her termination was because, quote, her leadership style was incompatible with the city's values, and she was causing extensive workplace strife, and she refused to change her approach. And I have no idea what went on there. Like, I haven't seen this complaint. I don't know what's what's going on i just think it's a bad legal take to claim that this is somehow discrimination on the basis of you know sexual orientation or gender identity or whatever uh, she's claiming it is um and i'm honestly just sick of these like frivolous human rights complaints like we did talk about the caste discrimination and i think that's probably a real thing that causes like real harm but we hear about these human rights complaints all the time that are just so so silly. And it's because there's an incentive to do that. Like if you make a human rights complaint on top of your regular, um, request for, you know, pay in lieu of, of notice when you get terminated, um, you're automatically putting pressure on your employer to, you know, spend money on litigation and they don't want to do that. So in a lot of cases it leads to higher payouts, even if the claim is something this, this silly. I, it reminded me of a couple people I've heard about through working in the media before who were not very woke, not very politically correct. But as soon as they got terminated, suddenly they had human rights complaints about how people were, you know, racist to them or whatever. And uh, I just think that's a bit rich. Um, and I'm of the, the view that, you know, these human rights commissions. They need to kind of be curtailed, and um, in Ontario, they have been to some degree. Like the, the the Ford government in Ontario has cut the number of adjudicators in half, and I think that will lead to fewer frivolous complaints being processed because they just won't have the staff to do it, and they'll have to focus on the stuff that is really harmful. But um, yeah, saying that my uh, being fired for using the term "my humans" is somehow discriminatory—that's that's just a bad. Bad legal take. Christine, tell us about yours.
1: So, mine is about Sarah Jama. She is that Ontario MPP who was booted from the NDP caucus and sanctioned in the legislature. We've talked about her on the podcast before. Well, there's a new video circulating of her saying at some public speech that the quote, Zionist lobby has spread misinformation about the October 7th attack on the kibbutzes in southern Israel. And she said there is no evidence of Hamas having committed rapes that day and that the IDF has said babies were not decapitated. Now, this isn't a bad legal take per se. It's bad facts because quite literally the opposite is true i need therapy because of the images that i have seen from october 7th which hamas recorded themselves there's video and photographic evidence of all of these things having happened there's eyewitness accounts and saying that the so-called zionist lobby has made up atrocities against jews is an anti-semitic trope the whole concept of holocaust being fabricated, is being perpetuated again with this allegation that the atrocities of October 7th were fabricated. But I'm raising this as a legal take because JAMA calls this misinformation. And I think that this speaks to the problem with the entire term misinformation and by attempts by governments to crack down on so-called misinformation, because it's quite literally politicians and often the government... ...who are responsible for disseminating the worst mis- and disinformation, and this is Exhibit A. Imagine if Sarah Jama, an elected politician, was the person in charge of deciding what misinformation is or disinformation is... ...and removing it from the internet or imposing fines or criminal penalty for spreading misinformation... That's why we can't have prohibitions like that on misinformation or disinformation. Now, recall in 2020, the federal government considered introducing legislation to make it an offense to knowingly spread misinformation that would harm people. I think that this is a great example of why the government should not be and politicians should not be put in charge of deciding what Is true and what is not true because they are quite literally some of the worst liars out there so that's my legal take this week
0: yeah and who would be deciding what's misinformation and and what's what's not well when it comes to bill c36 it would be the canadian human rights tribunal and who's on the canadian human rights tribunal it's uh people appointed by the government as anyway i think we would we we know how that would all end up if it ended up happening That's it for us today. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean that, go rate us and review us now. And if you don't give us five stars, then that is definitely a human rights violation. And I'm coming for you. Um, Just remember, you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our Freedom Update newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a non-partisan legal charity funded by donations, so please donate if you can. And like I mentioned, you can double your impact if you do that between now and the end of the year. Thanks for listening.